I really think, and I was focusing on this and kind of reminiscing over the last four weeks or so that about this series and where we've been at in 1 Corinthians and how the Lord has encouraged us as a church through His Word. You know, because you can hear a lot of opinions, but it's more important to come to church and hear what God's Word says. Because I feel like it's given us a greater understanding about this, this battle that we're in, about running our race to win and fighting for the prize and even overcoming temptation. If you missed last week's study, we covered one major verse about temptation. Uh, please, if you didn't listen to that, revisit it. If you have listened to it, either way, you can check that out at visioncitychurch.com or on the app. But in this series, we've learned a lot from mistakes, a lot from other people's failures. Thankfully, in this case, it wasn't from our mistakes, but the people of Israel's mistakes, the ones that they made. No one said it had to be our mistakes that we learned from, Right? We don't have to make the same mistakes as everybody else. We can learn from somebody else, and I think that's called exercising wisdom. You don't have to make the same mistakes that they did because you learn from those things. Now, we have the great advantage of hindsight to be able to look back and to learn from the examples of what to do and what not to do. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6-11, through 11, you can just read along. It says, Paul writing, These things that we've been reading and studying became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And we learned that the people of Israel lusted in their hearts after evil things and it caused them a host of problems. He says in verse 7, And do not become idolaters as some were, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor, verse 8, let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the, the destroyer. And he says in verse 11, now all these things were written, all these things were written down because they happened. It's historical. All these things happened to them as examples that they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. And then now verses 12 and 13, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And we all say amen to that. Thank you, Lord. And I thought for my own life and even studying this, and you know, I've taught through this and read this passage of scripture before, but when I was sitting there at my desk and I was just Lord, speak to me. And I was reading through this how last week we talked about you have never been overcome by any temptation that was stronger than you. That's mind-blowing. That's game-changing. You're never tested beyond that which you're able to bear. God will never allow you to be tested beyond what you are able to overcome. Now, you know it's extremely difficult at times to do the right thing when you're not in a compromised situation. Just living your everyday life and trying to do the right thing, that can be hard, right? I think we all understand it. You know, we battle with the lust of the flesh and thoughts that pop in our mind and maybe things we see from a distance. But it's a completely different thing in dealing with temptation when you, when we, 
plant ourselves right in the middle of it by choice. It's one thing when I'm just living my life trying to do the right thing and trying to overcome temptation, and it's a completely different thing when I put myself right in the middle of a compromised situation hoping not to fall into sin. I mean, don't we want to be pure and holy before the Lord? But I keep getting in trouble when I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd and, with the wrong, and in the wrong environment. How does that keep happening? I want to be right with God. But every time I hang out with that group of people or over at that location, I have a hard time. A sure way to overcome the temptation of peer pressure is maybe not hang out with those peers that are pressuring you into doing something that's against God. Maybe you shouldn't be there in the first place. Like to begin with, you shouldn't be in that spot to have to make the decision to overcome the temptation. I mean, there you are. You're in the bar and you're feeling so overcome by the temptation to drink alcohol. Lord, this is so strong. There you are at the house party feeling so tempted to smoke the pipe that they're passing around in a circle. Why are you there to begin with? There you are in the club feeling so tempted to give in to lust. Why are you there to begin with? I mean, do you see where I'm going with this? I hope you do because it's exactly what Paul is taking exactly where Paul is taking us here in verse 14 and point number 1 which is this is it spiritually helpful to me is it spiritually helpful to me verse 14 1 Corinthians 10 he says therefore my beloved flee from idolatry now in the original language in the greek language there was actually an article which you know in grammar it's the Okay, this is, it actually would say, now brethren, flee from the idolatry. This is referring to the place of pagan worship. These are the temples that people would go to to worship false gods. Stay away from those areas where people are worshiping pagan deities. Think about this. What goes on at the Sutra Lounge? Or the top 10 nightclubs in Orange County. Oh, we don't have false gods here in America. Oh, yes, we do. We don't worship the goddess of sex. We don't have little idols. Well, wait a second. We do at strip clubs. Or we bring our own little portable temple that pops up as a computer or a smartphone with internet access. What about the worship of feeling good, a.k.a. pleasure? Hey, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Listen, you can't separate yourself from your actions because yourself goes with you wherever you go. So Paul is warning the Corinthian church, the Christians, to flee from the houses of pagan worship, the place where evil things take place. Flee from, or better yet, avoid. Like, you have to flee from something. Well, you flee from something if you're in it, but it's better to not be in it and have to flee from it. Specifically, idolatry. Remember, we read this already, but verses six, uh, excuse me, verses uh, six and seven of the same chapter, it says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. So be wise, learn from others' mistakes. I find this fascinating because we don't realize that there are certain venues where pagan worship takes place. And it doesn't have to be some shrine. There could be. 
There could be a shrine on a table that's a live person. We can put ourselves in in environments where you know no good thing is taking place here. Everything here is just the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything that's happening in this particular location is not of God. It's house of worship. It really is. So be wise. Learn from others' mistakes. In verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, for you history buffs, you know the Corinthians prided themselves on being wise, intellectual. And that idea was challenged by Paul to think about the things that he was saying. Some may say this. Some may say that they're in the midst of idolatry, but they're not partaking in it. I'm in the middle of it, but hey, I'm not involved with it. You know, I'm just going to dance with my girlfriends. Or I'm not drinking, I'm just hanging. Some thought they could hang out at the pagan temple restaurants, and that was okay, according to what history tells us and what Paul is talking about here. Can you be there without partaking? Is there guilt by association or is it just a matter of time before you slip into something that you shouldn't be doing because you've been so compromised by your environment for so long? You've become desensitized to it. What used to you know, appall you or repulse you, you've become numb to it because you're now familiar with it. You're familiar with it. You've seen it and you slowly start to see your resistance just getting chipped away at. In Psalm 1 verse 1, and we started this in our men's ministry some weeks back. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The progression there. I'm not walking in the counsel of the ungodly. I'm not standing in the path of the sinners, and I'm not sitting in the seat. I'm not there in it. Now Paul's going to make his point here, and he's going to use communion as an example In verse 16 he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, verse 17, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Yes, it is true that we are the one body of Christ. We are. We're one in Jesus But not only do we have fellowship with the Lord through faith in Jesus, but we have fellowship with those that are naming the name of Jesus, our brothers and sisters. Like, I have a relationship with you and you with me because of our relationship with Jesus. There's fellowship there. There is a connection there. We're partaking in the one bread as part of our worship to the Lord, as we do on the first Sunday of every month. Worshiping the Lord is a very important part in the Christian's life how we worship because we will give our praise and our worship to something or to someone see it's a spiritual thing that's represented with this physical thing called communion it happens and he says in verse 18 observe israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar All those that ate of the sacrifices were partaking in the acts of worship that were performed on the altar. The priests interceding on behalf of the people. They were partaking in that sacrifice by being involved with it to some extent. 
Okay, well, where is he going with this? And you might be reading this and like, well, what's the point? What is he saying in regards to pagan worship or hanging on the outskirts in the places where you eat the meat cooked for an idol or partaking in this? Listen to this. The small part of the big picture of what is evil. Man, I'm not all the way in. I'm not doing that. I'm kind of, I'm there, but I'm not partaking in it. What is this all about? Well, I'm glad you asked because he answers it in verse 19. He says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idol is anything? I mean, we already know that an idol is nothing. It's man-made, inanimate. They chop down a tree, they carve it out, and he bends over and worships it. An idol's nothing. However, the worship of any God apart from the one true and living God is demonically inspired. Call it for what it is. Rather, verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. I hope we'd all say, okay, all right. I don't want that either. I've shared stories with you about people that have been demon-possessed that I've, that I've come in contact with. You don't want anything to do with that. But the enemy, the enemy is very, very subtle because he'll lure you in with the lust of the eyes, things that look good or that'll make you feel good, the lust of the flesh. And you're like, hey, you know, I kind of have my boundaries and I'll, I'll be right here in the middle and don't worry, I'm a, I'm a big girl or I'm a big boy and I can, I can be in here and it won't phase me. It doesn't, no, don't you understand? It's hard enough as it is to do the right thing when you're not in a compromised situation without putting yourself in a compromised situation and saying, God, please help me. Why do I keep falling into sin? Why are these songs that are explicit stuck in my head? Why do I feel like I want to do these things that I see other people doing all the time because that's in the environment that I'm in? You have to understand that if it's not worshiping God, that attribution of worship is going to a demon. This is what happens in many of the places of hangouts where we see people going today. And we don't understand that that's the kind of thing that takes place. The bumping and the grinding. The explicit lyrical content. The immodesty. The sexuality. The inebriation. You know, you just think about these things and understand that people are falling into this kind of thing and it's not unique to our society. It's been going on forever. In Corinth, it was probably, well, Las Vegas for us is probably the closest thing to what Corinth was. Everything was, go- everything was good. All goes. I mean, we talked about some weeks back how, you know, you can find somewhere, someplace where immorality is legalized. Does that mean that it's okay to do? What should a Christian be doing? Should he be in that situation to begin with? He says, rather that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. It doesn't get any more black and white than that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul wrote, and he said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? In verse 20, for those of you old school Christians, and maybe some of you that have heard this word because you maybe sing it in a song or you've heard it before, 
koinonia. How many of you have heard the word koinonia? Wow, a lot of you. This is the word that's used here in verse 20. I don't want you to have koinonia with demons. The same word used for communion in verse 16 that we read, referring to our koinonia with one another in Christ and with the Lord, is the same word that he uses here in verse 20 to describe your koinonia with a demonic entity. The same koinonia that we have with Christ and the members of the church is the same type of misdirected fellowship and worship that that worshipers of false gods have with demons. If I were them, and I hope maybe some of us that this may need to be heard, that they'd be saying right now to themselves, I don't think I can be doing this thing anymore. I don't think I should be partaking in this any longer. See, for those that participated in the eating at the pagan temple were participating in something that they needed to stay as far away as possible from. This culture that was just completely interwoven with pagan worship, he's like, you guys don't want to have anything to do with that. Stay out of those places. Don't be there. You don't want to be overcome by temptation. You don't want to have fellowship or koinonia with the evil that's taking place there. And you cannot be deceived into thinking that the bad company that you keep is not going to affect your good morals. That's why the Bible says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. We can't be deceived into thinking that. Now, for a lot of the young people today, and I can say young people, and I'm thinking of like high school college, 20s, even 30s. It was funny, Ruth and I were talking about how people in high school are still, people, what they did in high school, they're still doing and they're 40 and they're 50 and they're still partying and still drinking. You're like, wasn't that like a phase in your life? And it's like the same thing that they do forever and ever. But a lot of the younger people that are coming up, maybe even growing up in church, want to see how close they can get to the world, and they're finding themselves compromised and in environments that they shouldn't be in. I, I, I knew this girl years ago that says, you know what, I could just never meet a good guy. And she's like, there's no good guys at any of these clubs that I have been to. And I'm like, you're looking in the wrong places for good guys. You need to go to church. Find a good guy that loves the Lord more than he loves you. And you'll be hooked up for the rest of your life. Why can I not find a good godly man at all these clubs that I'm going to? Well, no, you don't go to clubs to find good godly guys. Anybody that's been to a club, you know why you go to clubs. And it's not godly. So, I think today there are a lot of divided worshipers that take a little bit of religions that they like and kind of make their own religion. This little, you know conglomeration of different things that they like they call themselves christians though and they're not following the same god who said you shall have no other gods besides me to that effect verse 21 he says first corinthians 10 you cannot drink the cup of the lord in the cup of demons 
You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And talking about you're there at the table in church, which is uh, representing communion, and you're saying this is the body of Jesus that was broken for me, and this cup represents uh, the, the, his blood that was spilled, and I participate in communion. But then I'm over here, and I'm participating in these things that are demonic. This ought not to be. Man, you're sounding so legalistic right now. Are you a Pharisee? No, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Why as a Christian would I want to put myself in a compromised environment? Why would I want to put myself in a place where evil's taking place? I've run in and grabbed people out of clubs that I knew that were walking away from the Lord and involved in bad stuff. And I've been in some of those places and I tell you, there is no good thing that happens there. Well, I'm just going to share the gospel, brother. They can't hear you to begin with because the music's so loud. I just want to tell you about Jesus. I like this song too. You know, whatever. It's like, no, it's like, come on, don't deceive yourself. So whether you realize it or not, or intend to or not, by participating in these things that are associated with evil, you're putting yourself in a bad position. You don't want to do that. God is the only one to whom praise should be given and the only one worthy of it. In verse 22, he says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And the answer is, we are not. We're not. And I think that we need to just address this real quickly. And for those of you that may have been wondering about this, interesting thing about God being a jealous God. Because we know jealousy's wrong, right? So is God wrong when he's jealous for us? We even sing that song today. He is jealous for me. And you're like, wait a second, how does that even work? Interesting thing about jealousy is that when we're jealous as human beings, it stems from selfish motives. And I can tell you right now, when we're jealous, we're not thinking about the, what the other person wants or what is best for them. We're thinking about what we want and what's best for us. Jealousy. You should be spending time with me. You should be doing this for me. And it's all self-focused. When it says that God is a jealous God, it's from a divine perspective on what is best for you. See, worshiping false gods, continuing in sin, is not good for you. And it's not good for me. And God knows that. God doesn't want you heading after things that are harmful, and thus he is jealous for your worship and for your commitment. And that's in your best interest. So it's not an unrighteous jealousy that we would have in our interpersonal relationships. This is a supernatural perspective of God actually desiring you to do what is best for you. So do we provoke the Lord to jealousy by doing these things? Do we think that we can get away with being in these environments and doing these things that are sinful or hurtful to us spiritually and think that God is going to turn a blind eye? Are we stronger than he? No, we are not. In verse 23, he says, Now all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Back in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12, Paul said something very similar to this. He said, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And this phrase, and we know this to be true, all things are lawful, man. 
I don't have to do good things to get to heaven. It's been much abused, really by individuals seeking to justify their wrongdoing. And I know you might be thinking, man, this is hardcore. Well, it is. It seriously is. This is real life, and this isn't sugarcoating anything. People want to say, oh, man, I can do whatever I want. Yes, you can. But when Paul says here, all things are lawful for me, and you're saying, I can say all things are lawful for me. I can determine whatever I want to do is right or wrong. That's not what he's saying. And yes, you can do whatever you want to do, but not everything you want to do is pleasing to God. This is a very dangerous misinterpretation of this scripture. Hey, man, get off my back. Stop being so condescending or condemning. Stop being so legalistic. I mean, that's what you'll hear. When people tell you to be holy and you're not being holy, the first thing you want to say is, hey, man, get off, step off, go take a run and jump. Stop being, you know, so legalistic. Don't tell me what to do. I mean, I've seen this misinterpreted by young and old. You know, hey, man, I'm not breaking any laws here. This is all legal. What are we thinking? I mean, you can travel anywhere in the world and find a place where whatever it is is not illegal. You can travel anywhere in the world and find some place where it is legal and it is promoted and it is accepted. So I can find a place somewhere in the world where I can do the things that I want to do and I'm not breaking any laws. You know, and, and I mentioned this weeks ago from, you know, the red light districts to private islands. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, that might be legal, but is it helpful? Is it helping me spiritually? Because it could be legal but it could also be spiritually lethal. And I will not be brought under the power of these things. Back in Romans 7, chapter 22, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 22 through 25, he says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and we'll actually stop in this verse, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. See, the spiritual man delights to do the law of the Lord. That's the good part of you. For those of you that are hearing like the flesh, what in the world does that mean? Just consider it the worst part of who you are. The one with the natural inclination to do that which is sinful. Is this helping me? I don't want to be under this control. I don't want to be under this temptation constantly. I don't want to be... susceptible to falling into this sin, I don't want to do those things that are not spiritually helpful to me. The Bible tells us you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you'll of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So listen, in the world we live in today, you can find legalized immorality anywhere in the world, but it doesn't mean it's helpful in building you up spiritually. So that's point number one this morning, and that is a lot. Is it spiritually helpful to me? Point number two this morning, and this is a shorter section of this chapter, is this. And this is where we'll conclude. Just two points today. Is it spiritually helpful to others? Hmm. Is what I'm doing spiritually helpful to me? And then secondly, is it spiritually helpful to others? See, it's very easy to be caught up in being so self-focused when it comes to our actions. You know, we say things like, hey, it's my body. Or, hey, it's my life. I can do with it whatever I want. And we often overlook taking into consideration how our actions affect other people. And for the Christian, it should not be that way. 
And that's why Paul says in verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. You've got to think about the things that you do and ask yourself, is it going to be helpful to the spiritual growth of the people that I know? I think about that, and we're like, you're the pastor. Well, I think about that in my own home. Hey, if I'm doing this and Hudson sees this, is this going to help my son be a godly young man? Dads, we ask ourselves, hey, is the way I'm speaking or communicating, is this the right thing to do that's going to help my kids? Or, you know, if I do this, is he going to want to do it? Or if I do this, how is it going to affect my friends at church or my Christian friends? Are they going to see me and is this going to be spiritually helpful to them or is it going to be spiritually detrimental to them? My friends, my family, my church. It's a sign of a very healthy believer when he deems others better than himself and is concerned with his actions being spiritually helpful to others. I remember Pastor Chuck used to tell me he'd never hold a root beer bottle, glass bottle, those little brown bottles. Because somebody would think he was drinking alcohol, it could cause somebody to stumble, so he just never did it. I don't know why that little thing stuck with me in my head. You know, you could just imagine, for those of you that know or knew Pastor Chuck, you know, if you saw him sitting there drinking the beer, you'd be like, no! It says Ruth, no, please! You know, whatever. And you don't want to do something that would cause somebody else to, to stumble. Now, coming full circle back around, as he concludes with some final thoughts on the culture's pagan worship practices. In verse 25, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions. So this is differentiating between being in the house of worship and eating those things that were sacrificed on the altar and there at the table of demons. Okay, so this is a separate thing. Because we talked about how there were leftovers from the temples that would be sold in the market. And he says, there's idols, nothing. Don't, don't ask any questions is what, he's ask, is what he's saying here, for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. You don't need to ask if this meat was sacrificed. You're a follower of Jesus. Idol is nothing. Don't worry about this. It's not a dinner feast at the pagan temple and you're not participating in that worship. You go into the market, you're going to buy some meat, you're going to bring it home. So I don't need to ask the manager. When I go to Trader Joe's, if this package of chicken was prepared by a Christian or not, I just buy my food and I don't worry about it. But then, what if a non-Christian, what if a non-Christian invites you over to dinner and the food they set before you could have been from a pagan temple? You have non-Christian friends and they invite you over. What happens? And he says, verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat that we're about to eat was offered to idols. He says, verse 28, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord and all its fullness. Conscience, verse 29, say not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? So he says, eat what's set before you without asking questions. But if somebody says, this was offered to an idol, he says, don't eat it. Why? Well, in so doing... You're going to be a witness to the one who told you it was offered to a false god, saying, hey, that's a false god. 
There's only one true and living God, and I'm not going to participate in something that was offered to something that was evil. I think about that practically. You know, are there things that I can do that are a witness? Because most of the time we say, well, you know, I don't want to offend somebody, or I don't, I don't, I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. You know, they invited me to, to, to this place, and, you know, how, what if I say no to it, and then they get offended and are upset? Listen, do you have the fear of man, or do you have the fear of God? You might think, well, that's very insensitive. No, I'm not talking about your sensitivity to, to other people. I'm talking about, number one, knowing who you are in Christ. Number two, knowing the witness that you are to that other person. Number three, are you putting yourself in a compromised position? Are you there supporting something that is clearly before God as evil and saying nothing about it and not doing anything? We don't want to be in that spot because we have a great opportunity to share with those about the greatness of our God. So Paul's calling the Christian to avoid the environment of pagan worship, not the food itself. We know that that's nothing. The earth is the Lord and its fullness thereof. I'm not offending my conscience nor am I wounding the conscience of others. Then how will I be judged as evil? See, there's liberty but within the confinements of love for one another. Am I thinking about how this is going to affect me spiritually? You know, it got to the point where there were certain things in my life that I knew I just had to cut out. As you work in the world, you're around non-Christians all day, and that rubs off on you. The jokes, the lifestyles, the, even the, the invites to parties and things that, that you're finding yourself, like, I, I re, I'll never forget it. I remember when I was, man, I was about 19, 19 or 20, and I was working at Nordstrom at South Coast Plaza, and... Uh, <laughs> and, and it was one of those things where, you know, I worked over the summers in between college, and it got to the point where I was just around the, this for so long, and it just so happened the kind of people that I was working with were, were so far away from where, you know, I was in my walk with the Lord, and I'm not saying this condescendingly, I'm just saying that they weren't Christians and I was, and I wanted to be right with the Lord, but all of a sudden you just see it start wearing you down and wearing you down, and wearing you down. And next thing you know, hey, do you want some, do you want to, do you want to, uh, uh, do you want to use um, some cocaine? And I'm like, what in the world? What in the world? Like, how does that happen? How, how do you find it? And, and it scared me half to death because I'm thinking to myself, how am I even in the position to be able to be offered this kind of thing? I got to get out of here. It's better not to be in that environment to begin with than to have to face the temptation because you put yourself in the environment to begin with. And the key to all of this as we wrap up this morning is found in verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Does that not just sum it up? Therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatever it is that you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. And just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Remember, Paul said, I've become, I've made myself the servant of all that I might win the more. We talked about how gains and wins come through service. He was the man that was concerned with the well, spiritual well-being of those that were around him. So with the world and with the church and with your non-Christian friends, 
and your non-Christian family and with your Christian friends and your Christian family. Wins and gains come through self-sacrifice. Not seeking your own profit. It's going to make me very uncomfortable if I tell them about Jesus right now. I don't know if I can do this. Use it as an example to share with them how the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And God is great and he sent his only son, Jesus. And some of you may even have that opportunity at your family gathering today. And you might just say, oh, great. Use it as an opportunity that they might be saved. But really, the profit of as many people as I can possibly reach, that they may be helped in their walk with the Lord or that they might be saved, is what we should be after. So whatever you do, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And that's how you'll win your race. And that's how you'll be fighting for the prize. And you'll hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to be in this place of worship. And Lord, we thank you that this house of worship is to the, dedicated to the one and true living God. Lord, we have entered these courts with praise. We have lifted up our voices. We have honored you, Lord, with the reading and study of your word. And Lord, we ask that today that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, to have understanding. Help us to be aware, Lord, of the places that we find ourselves in. Are they dens of iniquity? Are they places where evil is being practiced? Should we be there? Is it spiritually helpful to me? And secondly, is it spiritually helpful to others? Lord, may we be concerned with the spiritual well-being of others, Lord. May we be concerned first and foremost with pleasing you above all else. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased with us. Help us, Lord, not to lust after evil things. When we find in our hearts that we're desiring after something that is evil, may we confess that to you, Lord. May we recognize that and say, Lord, that's evil. I don't want that. Lord, remove this from me. Confess it to the Lord. Find forgiveness, find strength. And know, Lord, may we know, may we be reminded yet again today that we are not ever overtaken by any temptation that is stronger than we are with your strength and your power in us. And so, Lord, bless our day today. We ask that you give us traveling mercies as we go our separate ways and we visit mom and dad and spend time with our moms today. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our lives. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you now. And we all ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all the church says, amen. Let's all stand. Let's all stand. If you need prayer for anything, I know you probably have, you know, a lot of plans for lunch and things today. But if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team is available to pray with you uh, after service on my left and your right. And then today, may the Lord just give you a special blessing. And moms, thank you so much for all that you do. We hope that you have a wonderful day and that the Lord richly blesses you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you and happy Mother's Day.